Let us read together. This is the really the climax of the the healing of the uh, of Lazarus, the, one of the greatest minist- uh, miracles in the ministry of Jesus. So let's read together John eleven verse thirty eight, and we're going to read through verse forty six together. John eleven thirty eight. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, Come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you and hear from you and and Jesus I thank you that as as you said to to Martha if Martha if you believe you you're going to see the glory of God and Lord again we just we just pray as Moses prayed God would you show us your glory today show us your glory God as we sit at your feet as we open your word would that be the cry of our heart Lord show us your glory. God, we know you've created everything there is for your glory. At the the blazing center of why you do all that you do is, is your glory. We know there's no other God, no other person, nothing else in the universe that can compare with you and your glory. God, we remember as we think through the story of history and in the story we see in your word, every, every pinnacle moment in history was when you showed up and displayed your glory to your people. As you delivered your people from Egypt, as you had brought those 10 plagues and as you sent the angel of death, as you parted the Red Seas, as you poured out bread, it was to display your glory as you came to rescue your people in battle after battle, it was to display your glory. As you delivered Daniel from the lion's mouths and his friends from the furnace, it was to display yourself and your glory. And as Jesus, you showed up and you performed mighty miracles, as you raised Lazarus from the dead, it was for your glory. God, we acknowledge with Paul 
that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet we remember the cross where Jesus, you, the the image of the invisible God, the, the glorious one where you took our place on the cross and you paid our debt so that if we would trust in you, we would be forgiven so that we could be brought to this glorious God, to, to the throne of grace, to find help in our time of need, so that we could behold the glory of God. And so God, as we gather today with uh, the saints all across the globe, if they've been gathering for thousands of years, we just again pray, Lord, show us your glory. Show us your glory today. Spirit of God, show us more of the glory of God. It is an infinite glory. We will never get to the end of it, Lord. We'll never see all that there is. Lord, if there's anyone who's kind of cynical today or kind of hardened today, would would your spirit pierce through that as, as you did with Martha? And would you show us more of your glory? God, if there's anyone who's grieving or mourning today as as Mary and these mourners were at the tomb, would you show us your glory? Would we forget everything else that there is as we look to Jesus and would would we behold the glory of God and we trust that that will be enough for us. That'll be enough for our souls. And so we open up your word, Lord, and we wanna hear from you and we just wanna see Jesus together. Show us Jesus, show us the very glory of God as we study your word. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray, amen. 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 Well, now we come to the the really, this this story is the climax of the the ministry of Jesus. This this is the climax of his miracles. In many ways, this is the climax to the, the, the whole first half of John. You may not realize in John chapter 11, we are already just a few weeks from the cross. As this miracle happens, we're, we're somewhere around March and, and, uh, Passover is in April. I mean, we're a few weeks from the cross and Jesus closes his public ministry with this miracle. If you remember through with me through the gospel of John, we've, we've seen a creation miracle in John 2 as Jesus created wine out of water. We've, we've seen uh, the reversal of the curse as Jesus heals uh, a man's son in John chapter 4. We've seen Jesus restore a man's legs in John 5. We've seen Jesus reenact the Exodus as he said, I'm the bread of life. And as he provided bread for people in the wilderness. And then as he went to cross the Sea of Galilee, we saw that in John 6. And then we've seen Jesus restore the sight of a man born blind in John 9. And and this leads us now to the seventh miracle in the gospel of John is Jesus heals his friend is he raises his friend Lazarus who's been dead and decaying in a tomb for four days. Now I want you to imagine if there was a man in our congregation who died and then four days later by the prayers of the saints and the power of God he's risen from the dead. I want you to imagine what church would be like that next week as that man was walking around shaking hands or, you know, politely elbow bumping or whatever would be happening right now. Imagine what church would be like. Imagine the questions you would have for this man. 
Imagine what his testimony would be like. Imagine the buzz that would be about our church service that, that, that day. Do you know what's fascinating about this text? We don't get any of that. We don't, we don't hear what Lazarus had to say. We don't hear his first words. We don't hear the, the human responses and reactions. All of the focus is somewhere else as we read this story. All the focus is on another person. John, the author of this gospel, wants all attention, even on this miracle. He wants all the focus and all the attention on Jesus and the glory of God. And remember, John, the the author of this gospel, was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means what does the Holy Spirit want us to be thinking about and fixing our attention on as we read this story? Well, the Holy Spirit wants us to be looking at the person and the power and the glory of Jesus. That is the point of this miracle, as amazing as it is. The purpose, as we, we, if you remember, we read at the beginning of chapter 11 in verse four, it says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for what? The glory of God. So that the son of God may be glorified through it. The purpose of this miracle is the glory of God. And so together, we're going to see five, five ways Jesus displays his glory. We're going to notice five, it's, it actually, Jesus speaks five times in this text. And the text naturally breaks up in five ways as the spirit of God wants us to notice these five ways Jesus is displaying his glory. And so when Jesus in this text displays his glory, the first thing we notice, and this is counterintuitive, the first thing we notice is he actually gives people something to do. This is really counterintuitive. What's the first way Jesus displays his glory in this climactic miracle? He actually gives people something to do. Look with me at verse 38 and 39. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, what's the first thing he says? Take away the stone. Take away the stone. Now, a pretty common feature of the miracle ministry of Jesus is he includes people in these miracles. He doesn't have to do that. But, but remember the first miracle in John. He tells servants, hey, fill these jars up with water. If you remember, often he would tell parents before he said what he's going to do, if he's going to heal their children, he would give them some kind of instruction. I want you to go back home. If you remember, he asked his disciples, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? If you remember when he healed 10 lepers, he said, I want you to go wash yourself and show yourself to the priest. And then we remember when, when a man's hand was withered, he said, hey, stand up and stretch out your hand in front of everybody. He requires often this human participation in his ministry. And we know none of these human actions were sufficient to accomplish the miracle. 
but he was, he was pleased to include people in his work. He's pleased to glorify himself through the ordinary actions, the ordinary even obedience to Jesus. It's this, it's this counterintuitive thing God often does and still does. He, he, he prepares people to see his glory through ordinary means of ordinary people. Take away the stone. He didn't have to ask them that. In fact, if you remember, there was no human that took away the stone in front of Jesus's grave. God didn't need help removing the stone. But in this case, he wanted people who were there with their own hands to physically remove the stone. You could ask, well, why would I take away the stone if we already know he's gonna heal Lazarus? We can ask that question today. Why obey God if he's already has his plans, if he's sovereign, if he's gonna do what he's gonna do? Why participate? Why obey? God is sovereign. He's going to do it. What a silly question that would be. It is a joy and privilege to obey Jesus and participate in his supernatural work. Imagine if you had the opportunity to be standing at that tomb and Jesus said, hey, can you help me roll away that stone? What a privilege to be like, I was one of the guys who rolled away with my own hands. Trust me, it was a big stone. I saw it with my eyes. That's what walking with Jesus is like. Listen, God's gonna do what he's gonna do. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail. We believe God knows the future because he's God. We believe he is able to accomplish his plans and purposes without us. But what a privilege it is to be used and participate even in ordinary, simple ways. I want us to think about what, what, What corresponds in our own life? What simple obedience is Jesus asking you to do? Where is he saying, hey, I want you to take away that stone. Roll away that stone. I want you to remove that thing from your life. God will display his glory. He will move. He will act. And yet he still calls ordinary people to ordinary obedience. That is part of the pleasure of walking with God. And as we do these simple acts of obedience, listen, these people didn't know the end of the story yet. In fact, as we're about to see, some people thought that was a crazy thing to do. Roll away the stone of a guy who's been rotting in a grave. That's insane, Jesus. Often our own simple obedience will feel crazy. But these are the building blocks that Jesus often uses to get ready to display his glory. Now, the second way we see Jesus display his glory is this. He lovingly confronts our doubt. He lovingly confronts our doubt. Look again at verse 39 and 40. Jesus said, take away the stone. But Martha The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? There's never been a more on-brand moment for Martha than when she corrects Jesus right before a miracle. No, Jesus, what are you doing? Don't do that. Let me tell you what to do, Jesus. 
um, listen, that we would be faithful to remove stones, but how often are we like Martha, right? How often are we even opposing Jesus through our tendency to doubt, through our, our tendency to think, what are you thinking, God? That doesn't make any sense. Let me tell you, Jesus, what needs to happen here. And what's amazing is Martha is a genuine daughter of God. She is a saint. She loves the Lord. And yet we see this this weakness in a saint as her mind is more fixed on practical circumstances, on appearances, on, on superficial things, maybe what people would think as her own brother is exposed, as his tomb is open. She's more consumed with right now than she is on the, the, the power and the glory of God. Has anyone else ever felt like that? Has anyone else ever get consumed with these simple, superficial worries? And, and it's almost as if we forget that Jesus is real that Jesus is still able to move and to act as if it's, it's actually better to obey Jesus, even if it may cost us some things, even if it confronts our worries or anxieties or our doubts. How prone can we be to functionally daily wake up and operate like Martha as if God doesn't exist? How often do we forget to to factor him in and his glory and his power to our our, our daily activities. And so as Jesus did, if you remember when when she confronted him about uh, about allowing Mary to sit at his feet, Jesus in his love towards Martha, he lovingly but sternly corrects her doubts and her weakness. He speaks to her. He doesn't just leave her there. And, you know, let's be fair to Martha. Her brother is dead and has been dead for some time. And she didn't have the gospel of John and hear about this story. She didn't know how it would end. Her doubt, you could almost say, was reasonable. Most people stay dead. This was reasonable. Based off of her knowledge and experience, it's, it's a reasonable thought to not remove that stone. And how easy it is for us to have reasonable doubts, reasonable cynicism towards Jesus. He hasn't healed my brother. He hasn't changed my circumstances. But I want us to remember something. What is the purpose of this story? Let me tell you. It is the ultimate goal here is not the miracle. It's not the change in circumstances. It's the glory of God. That's the point. That's the purpose. What does Jesus say to her? Did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? What is, how does Jesus confront her in her reasonable doubt? He reminds her there's something more important, the glory of God. What what Jesus is after here is the belief and trust of Mary, of Martha, even before he performs the miracle. Now, 
The glory of God is the point, not the miracle. Listen, many people will see the miracle in this this occasion in history, but most will not see the glory of God. Many will witness the change in circumstances, but only those who believe will see the glory of God. He's concerned with her faith. He's concerned that she would be more concerned with the glory of God. The glory of God is beholding the person of Jesus and seeing him for who he really is. That that's more important than anything else. Because we all know miracles do come and then sometimes they don't come. We all know we all will rise again. But sometimes like Martha, there's this time between now and when that happens. And what Jesus is concerned about is that we would trust him and believe in him and long to see his glory regardless of the circumstance. Jesus is going after her heart. He's going after her faith. He's confronting her. Martha, Martha, believe in me and you will see the glory of God. And I love that from all we can tell, she doesn't say another word. And, and if anything, she consents, maybe some body language, maybe a nod of the head, because the very next thing we read is, so they took away the stone. So they took away the stone. I even imagine those guys standing there, they're about to obey Jesus and they hear Martha's protest and they're like, do I obey him? Do I obey her? They're watching this dynamic and, and something happens and they took away the stone. And so now we see the third way Jesus reveals his glory and it's this. He reminds us who he is. Verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father. Now, before I read the rest of the prayer, I want you to just try and picture if you were there and they roll away the stone and you're probably anticipating it's going to smell soon. And all eyes are on the tomb and they're on Jesus. Imagine the suspense, like what's about to happen? What's going to happen? What's Jesus going to do? There's people still with tears on their cheeks and they're all looking at Jesus. And what does Jesus do? What is Jesus, how does he reveal his glory? It says, he lifted up his eyes and said, Father. Now in Jewish culture, you do not call Yahweh father. That is utterly disrespectful. And that would be to, to make yourself equal with Yahweh. And, and yet Jesus says, Father. Like, who is this man? Who does he think he is? He just ordered the, the, the stone removed. And now he's talking to Yahweh and he says, Father. What Jesus is doing is reminding everybody who he is. Before he performs the miracle, he wants people to remember who he is. And then notice what he prays in verse 41. I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Now, 
one interesting thing here. Jesus, unlike any other prophet, any other miracle worker in all the Bible, he doesn't present a request to God. He doesn't say like Elijah, hey God, you know, there's like, this is a big moment. It would be really nice if you showed up and poured on the fire. He doesn't plead with God. God, would you please raise Lazarus? This isn't a request. This is a a, a thanksgiving. This is Jesus publicly saying, God, you hear me. You always hear me because I'm your son. And we don't have, we don't do things differently. I don't desire something and you say no, or you don't say something to do. And I say, no, you always hear me. We are one. And in fact, I want everyone to remember this and recognize this publicly, that I'm the son of God. I am one with the father. I want them to know who it is that is about to raise a man from the dead. We, we saw him weeping just a moment ago because he's truly man. But what he's about to do and what he's doing as he's praying is saying, but I'm also truly God, the second person in the Trinity. I am one with God. What I say, what I do reveals the Father because we are one. Now, practically, when we are in our own place of doubt or grief, Jesus, Jesus lovingly reminds us through his word, through his prayers, by his spirit of who he is. That he is the son of God. That he has enjoyed perfect communion with his father for all eternity. Whatever the father has, he has. He is the one through whom God created the world. He's the one through whom God saves sinners and through whom sinners can approach God. He is the resurrection and the life. There is nothing impossible for him. He's reminding and declaring to everyone, remember who I am. And now the fourth way Jesus displays his glory is he unleashes his power. He unleashes his power. Let's read verse 43 and the beginning of 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. How does he display his glory? I want to even take a, take a step back and think, how, by what means does Jesus raise Lazarus? It says, he cried with a loud voice. Let's just take a moment to remember there is no power like the voice of Jesus, like the word of God. That is why he is called the word. How does he create the world? By speaking through Christ, his word. By his word, He brings life by simply speaking. He reverses the decaying flesh of a body and brings life to that man. Now, what I love about his word as we read in the Bible is it's this double-edged sword because his word brings life, but but his word also defeats his enemies. It's double-edged. It brings life, but it also defeats 
his enemies. If you remember last week, it said Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. Another word for that is indignant or angered. And we saw that Jesus is an avenger because he was looking at one of his chief enemies face to face. He was face to face with death. And he was angry about death and what death has done. And what the Bible sometimes personifies death, it refers to death as the king of terrors. This, this, This king who has been claiming life from the beginning of time. And now Jesus shows up and by his word, he brings life and at the same time strikes a blow to death. He strikes a blow to one of his enemies. Now think about this. Up to this point in human history, that king of terrors has captured basically every living human being. He has quite this prison full of bodies. He's been claiming souls. He's not used to losing a captive. He's not used to being defeated. And yet Jesus shows up and unleashes just in one small way his power. And he calls Lazarus by his word from the grave. And it's as if Jesus is saying to death, hey, you better get used to this. This is the direction things are going. For in just a few weeks, Jesus will personally appear as a captive to this king. This this king of death will think, I have defeated the author of life. And yet, as we know, three short days later, death receives a mortal blow as Jesus rises from the dead. And that leads us very closely to the fifth way he displays his glory, and it's this. He sets people free. Jesus sets people free. Look at verse 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, practically, Jesus is speaking to the Jews right there. This is some practical love for Lazarus, who's probably more confused than he's ever been, right? Well, I don't know how that was for him, but he's alive and covered and he can barely walk. And so this is some practical love. But, but I want us to see a connection to our last point. Because as Jesus, by the power of his word, calls Lazarus from the grave, he's also saying these words to death. Hey, death, unbind him and let him go. He's saying to his enemy, it's time you let this one go. And you know what? There's an incredible parallel to this miracle and what will happen, listen, to every person in history. A few chapters back in in John chapter 5, verse 25, listen to what Jesus says will happen at the end of human history. John 5, 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. You know what? I'm skipping a point. This miracle of Lazarus is a picture of a few things. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of the end of history. And it's a picture of our ordinary walk with Jesus. And in John 5.25, we see these parallels. So the first one I want us to notice is this. 
the raising of Lazarus is first a picture of salvation. So verse 25 says this, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. What Jesus is saying in John 5 is that every human being like Lazarus was spiritually born dead. We may be walking around physically, but our souls are as dead as the body of Lazarus was in the grave. We were dead in our sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. We were unable to choose life or to love God as Lazarus was unable to do anything in that tomb. That's a picture of all of our spiritual state before salvation. And if you personally have yet to trust in Jesus, your body may be alive, but your soul is like Lazarus in a grave. There's no life there. But what happens? Jesus says in verse 25, he speaks and, and the dead hear the voice of the son of God. And what happens when dead souls hear the voice of the Son of God? Well, they're called out of death and into eternal life. When when the, the word of God, when the gospel is shared with someone whose soul is dead, the spirit of God moves and he brings new life to a soul. And a little picture of Lazarus happens in the human soul. And so Lazarus is a picture of how salvation works. But it's also a picture of the end of history. And that's the point Jesus makes in verse 28 and 29 of John 5. He says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Just think about this. The same voice that called Lazarus out of the grave will at the end of all time shout come forth death unbind them and every soul will rejoin its body and they will rise and stand before God that's gonna happen in history That's going to happen. I don't know how it all works. I mean, Lazarus's body was decaying and he came back. Ours may be ashes out in the Pacific Ocean, but our bodies are coming back. We will hear the voice of Jesus and our bodies will rise again, be rejoined with our souls and every person will stand before Jesus. Lazarus is a picture of the end of history. And those who have trusted in Christ will be raised to eternal life. And those who have done evil will be sadly given a body that will endure eternity in judgment. Now, Lazarus is this picture of salvation. It's this picture of the end of history, but I also want to make it practical. This is really also a picture of what it's like to walk with Jesus. Because listen, like Lazarus, though we have been given new life, does it not often feel like, man, I still have some stinky grave clothes on. Like I got life, I've heard Jesus, but it's kind of still hard to, to walk and follow and obey Jesus. The Bible refers to that as our flesh. 
If you've heard the voice of Jesus and if you've been born again right now, we are still stuck in these grave clothes, if you will. We're stuck in this flesh, this old man that is still tempted, is still prone to go back to the things of the the grave and that cause death. Even David in Psalm 23 confessed, Lord, restore my soul. Our souls, even our souls that are in communion with God need restoring. And I want us to just take these five points and really practically think about them as our walk with Jesus. Listen, number one, he gives us something to do. If you ever feel like I just am not alive and thriving, what stones? Roll away the stone. That means practical. That means getting up early. It means reading our Bibles. It means spending time with saints. It means disciplining our flesh. What, what, what is the practical stuff that he's given us to do? It may not change everything, but what practical things can we do every day as we walk with Jesus? The second thing he does for us every day, he confronts our doubt by his word. As he said to Martha, he says to us, remember what I said to you. He's calling us back. Remember what I said. Remember my word. Number three, he reminds us who he is as we get in his word. If we remember what he has said, we begin to remember, oh yeah, he's the son of God. He can do all things. I'm not in the grave. I have been born again. I am a son or daughter of God. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. He does restore my soul. He has given me his spirit. He is with me. And then fourth, often as it happens, it happened to me this morning as I was studying, he unleashes his power in us. We feel that blessing from the Holy Spirit like, oh, I'm alive again. I'm restored again. And often it takes the first three steps and and often takes a lot of time. But he does, he, he gives us his power. He speaks life to us. He restores our souls. And then finally, he sets us free. He says, unbind, unbind him and let him go. And I want to make one practical point here. It is freedom to obey the commands of Jesus. The greatest lie of the enemy is, oh no, free, Jesus is here to enslave you. Obey me and you'll be free. Go with the ways of the world and you'll be free. Cast off the restraints of God and his word and you'll be free. When in reality, it is our sin like grave clothes binding us. And when we obey Jesus, we are finally free. He made us. He made life. He made joy. He made relationships. It is the most sane thing to do to obey Jesus. It is the most joyful, freeing thing to do to obey Jesus. We don't obey him so that then we can come out of the grave and and have new life. No, we obey him because we have been raised from the dead, because we already have life. We've already been purchased by his blood. We don't earn his approval or our righteousness by our obedience. We just earn joy and sanity in life as we obey Jesus. That is most consistent with life as we obey Jesus. He sets us free to obey him, to walk with him every day. Now we'll close with the the last two verses in our text as we see, as often we see in John, a polarization happening when Jesus speaks and acts. 
Verse 45 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Praise God in 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. We see when Jesus shows up, when he displays his glory, when he works his power and speaks his word. It often has this polarizing effect and there's people who believe and then there's people who reject him. And they actually, in verse 46, what they're doing is they're outing Jesus to the, to the Pharisees. Jesus has been avoiding this area because there's been such drama. And what they do is they go tell the Pharisees, hey, if you want to find Jesus, he's over here. Now we see these, these two responses as a, they could be like a question for us, which which way are we going to go? Do, do you believe? Do you trust him? Do you see, have you seen his glory? And if not, may you like, like these Jews in verse 45, see and hear these things and think, I'm going to believe in this guy. I believe there is life and there is freedom and there is forgiveness in him. There's no one else like him. That's the invitation to come and believe, but 46, some reject him. And so would we all ask ourselves even afresh today, have I seen the glory of Jesus? Am I listening to his voice? Have have my own doubts been confronted? Will I believe and trust in him? And so Jesus, I do ask by the power of your spirit, that you would increase belief and faith in us as a church. I ask that as your word goes out, has gone out even now, that you, Holy Spirit, will give new life and belief to those who haven't trusted in you. Lord, if there are those of us like Martha who believe, but we still have some concerns or the flesh is still tempting us or we have some doubts, Jesus, call us back to belief. Call us back to trusting in you so that we could see your glory, Jesus, so that we could see who you really are. And Jesus, I just thank you that the day is coming when you will rend the heavens and every person will hear your voice, dead or alive, and we will rise again. And as it is very likely the first thing Lazarus saw when they took off that cloth was the face of Jesus. Lord, we know that's the first face we will see when we rise again. And Lord, I pray that for us, that would be the the best sight that we have ever seen because we love you and we trust you and we believe in you and we long to walk with you. Again, Spirit of God, would would you move and draw us to Jesus? Would you save? Would you even now as we approach you in in song and in worship, would you show us Jesus, Holy Spirit? Would you show us the glory of Jesus?